Among you uh, suffering, let him pray. Is anyone cheerful, let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick, let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sin, he'll be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it didn't, didn't rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings, him, brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Good afternoon and welcome. It's, um, it's great to be finishing up the last passage in the book of James. As Gav was saying, we've been in this book for 10 weeks now. Um, and it's been um, true from the beginning that uh, the book of James has been all about, if you follow Jesus, if your faith is in Jesus, it must show in your life. And so week after week, we've been seeing that James is hammering that same thing, that if you follow Jesus, if you know him, if you believe the gospel, it's not just about things that you say, but these beliefs should change your life and your actions and how you live. And this week is no different as we see that James is calling God's people to be the kind of church that God wants them to be. A church who are there for one another through thick and thin. I don't know if, if anyone's ever dropped on you any unsolicited insight into your personality, but uh, it has happened to me. And I don't know if that happened to you, how you responded but here's what happened when uh, I was talking to someone just casually. We were talking a little bit about ministry uh, and about um, leadership and my leadership in particular. And he made the observation uh, from, uh, from a game of five-a-side soccer that I'd been playing. And his observation was this. I was a striker. And so if you know anything about soccer, you know that strikers are the ones who get to, they basically finish the goals. So they get to claim all the glory for everyone else's hard work. And, um, and he made the observation that when a goal was on, I was very engaged in the play. And as soon as that was off, I basically just fell back. And so rather than chasing up the ball, doing a lot of defending or whatever it was, I was just pulling into the game at those particular moments. And uh, so I did what many people do when they hear an insight into themselves. They say, oh, that's really helpful. I'll go away and think about that. But inwardly, I was like, mate, what do you know? It's five aside. It's basically novelty soccer. It's not like an existential sort of, you know, whatever. But um, anyway, so, uh, but as I went away and reflected on it, I noticed a pattern in the way that I played. I noticed that, uh, that even if my team lost, if I scored a bunch of goals, I still felt kind of good about the game. <laughs> I noticed that it could go the other way, that my team could win, and if I played poorly or missed easy opportunities, that I'd kind of walk away feeling a bit dirty. And so I did notice that maybe it was the case that I wasn't really a team player that the thing that most concerned me was my individual performance rather than the result for the team. The, the mark of a team player is someone who cares more about what happens the good for the team than their own individual performance. I wonder for you, how do you think about church? Do you think about this as a group of people who follow Jesus? Or do you mostly think about it in terms of your own personal private experience? Have you ever come to church and thought, ah, oh, these songs aren't for me. They're so happy, clappy. These are, these are for like fake, happy, shiny people. Where are the dirges these days, you know? <laughs> or have you ever been in group and thought, 
I wonder where so-and-so is. I haven't seen them for a while. Oh, well, not my job, not my prob. <laughs> if you've thought things like that, or when you reflect on church, if what you mainly think about is your own journey or how things are going for you, James says you might be missing the point. And James has something to say to you in this final section of the book of James. He finishes this letter by saying, we are here for one another. We're not here to just get ourselves across the line and whatever happens to everyone else is on them. But he's saying you're meant to be here for one another, right to the end. Doing all that we can to see every brother and sister who would call themselves a brother and sister sitting among us there on the final day to meet Jesus, washed and forgiven and ready for the new creation. So I'm going to pray that that's the work that he'll do in our hearts this afternoon. Let's pray. Father God, we praise you that you are a good and glorious God. You have loved us with an everlasting love. You have poured out your love and grace upon us. You've called us to be a community here together for the sake of your name. And Father, we just pray that as we gather this afternoon to hear from your word, you would speak to us. You would encourage us, spur us on, and grant us the joy of the gospel and all for the sake of your holy name. Amen. Was well, the church for people who are joyful or people who are troubled? James would say from the beginning of this passage, yes. Look at what he says in James 5.13. As we open up this last section in the book of James, he says, Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Church is not meant to be caught in a single mode. It should be the case that at any gathering in the church, it would be a mix of people who are full of joy and people who are experiencing many troubles. And that's the blessing of being a part of a genuine community. Church, if you are someone who is feeling troubled, like your soul is not at ease this afternoon, then welcome, you are in the right place. And if you are someone who is joyful, you, are, you belong here as well. Whether you are someone who feels like now is the season where you need to pour out your heart in prayer to God, or whether it's that you need to pour out your words in praise, it is good that you would be here. If you're feeling troubled and worried, or if you're feeling contented and blessed, James says, this church community is for you. And that really is the mark of a genuine Christian community, isn't it? That it would be both at any given moment. I don't know if high school has changed in the five years since I've actually taught in one, but the, the, my experience throughout teaching in high schools, youth ministry, all that stuff, was that generally there was, there was a pretty reliable rule that it was safest to start a conversation with new people that you didn't know with a negative. If you join a new school community and the way of ingratiating yourself with that community was to be really positive and upbeat about school, you can be sure that you're putting your neck on the line. The safest way to start was, with, was by complaining about something. And it's not just teenagers either. Adults in the workplace, often when they enter a new workplace, you're more likely it's safer ground to start with a negative rather than a positive. And I wonder if that's because there's a false belief out there that for some reason being negative is somehow more sincere or authentic than being positive. When of course it's the case that both can be completely false. We're, f we're familiar with the cliche from movies and books and all these sort of things about fake people, happy shiny people who really inwardly are quite broken but they put on a, a smiling face and really pretend that they've got life together. That's a, a stereotype that we're familiar with. But it can be the case that people being negative can be just as false. 
that it can be just as untrue. There can be a confirmation bias in them to neglect the good things that they have in life and to focus on all the negatives, and it's just as insincere. James is saying the church community is meant to be both. There are people who are troubled, there are people who are joyful, and they're living in community together. And we need that. Because when you're sorrowful, it's actually a comfort to know that not everyone is in that season. I mean, sure, when, when we're in our worst place and we're feeling like the weight of the world is on our shoulders, we look at people who seem burden-free and we get jealous of them and we think, gosh, everything just seems to work out for them. Not that we know their lives fully, but in our mind that's how it plays out. But when we're being real with ourselves, often it's a comfort to know, if you're in a season of trouble, to know that it's not going to last forever. And similarly, if things are going well for you, to know that actually that too is a season that may pass. We will have troubles in this world. Jesus says that. A genuine church community, an authentic church community, should be full of people who are both full of rejoicing and, and with trouble and sorrow, who are pouring out their hearts in prayer to God. A real church is both. And often it's the case that we can feel the mix of those things in ourselves at the same time. So James is saying it's for both for people who are feeling troubled and for those who are happy. But then he goes on to address something strange. I don't know if you noticed it there in the reading before. Look at what James says in sentence 14 and beyond. He says, Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Elijah was a human being, even as we are, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again, he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crop. You might think, well, what is going on here? We've talked about those who are joyful and those who are troubled, and now we're on to the sick, and it starts out reasonably normal. He says if there are sick people, come and anoint them with oil. That wasn't some kind of magical or superstitious thing, but for that culture, that was a way of caring for the sick. And so he says, come and anoint them with oil and pray for them. But then we get the clincher. He says, and the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Notice the word will. There's complete and 100% certainty. It seems like the very Word of God is saying here, if you offer up a prayer of faith for someone who is sick, they will get healed. This doesn't match with our experience. Or maybe it does with yours, I'm not sure. But it certainly doesn't match with mine. Many of us know and have prayed for people who were sick. We prayed earnestly and sincerely in faith, and they weren't healed. But it's not a helpful thing to come to Scripture and say, well, that's not my experience, therefore it can't be true. When we come to difficult passages in the Bible, what we want to weigh up is Scripture on Scripture. If you have a high view of Scripture, and if you follow Jesus, you should, then what you say is, what does the Bible say about the Bible? How does this correspond to other parts of the Bible? And what we see in Scripture is, again and again, there are people who are sick and who are not made well. Paul, who some consider to be a follower of Jesus, who wrote most of the New Testament, we know, was sick. In Corinthians, he talks about praying about some sort of sickness, a physical ailment that he had. 
that he called a thorn in his side, and he prayed about it three times, and God did not heal him. More than that, he says to, to the Galatians in the letter to the Galatians, as you know, it was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you. He was sick. In 2 Timothy, Paul mentions that he left Trophimus sick in Miletus. Now, unless he was just unwilling to pray for his brother there, presumably he prayed for him, and presumably he remained unwell. So what do we do with this promise that the prayer will make the sick person well? This doesn't seem to fit with our experience or with Scripture. Well, the first offer that some people say is, well, it says a prayer in faith. So if the person is not healed, it's because they didn't have enough faith. And that at first glance seems like maybe some kind of a fair comment. But there's a problem in it even from this passage. The first is that it says in this passage that if a person is sick, call the elders to pray over them. So surely it would be their faith that was in focus in that matter. But secondly, we know that it's the case that Paul himself was sick and prayed for things and was not answered. And if anyone had faith, surely the one that Jesus commissioned himself to go to the Gentiles would be some kind of an example of someone who has faith and genuine faith. Someone who saw miracles happen and performed miracles. Did Jesus perform miracles through him? Now, it doesn't seem to add up the argument that they just don't have enough faith. But the second one is this. Some say, well, it's not talking about physical sickness. It's kind of like a spiritual malady. So it's kind of like a, you know, a godliness sort of issue that they're, they're sort of going through. The problem with that is, why would you anoint someone with oil for that? That was how they treated the sick in those days. Not only that, wouldn't you teach them scripture or the gospel in order to deal with that? It doesn't seem to fit, but not only that, the word sick here really just means sick. And there isn't anything in the context to indicate that he's talking about anything other than a physical illness. So then it brings us to the third objection. Well, someone like, well, James just, he's, he's pretty, he's terse, he just writes quickly, he's rash, he just forgot to say, if the Lord wills. But if you kind of go back a bit, there's a section that talks about, don't boast about tomorrow, but say, if the Lord wills, he just forgot to put it in for this bit. But it seems like he's written deliberately here, and that God has had him write exactly what he would have him write, and it seems pretty grounded, and he says that the healing will happen. The fourth is that some people say, well, yeah, but miracles were just for that time. Like, just after Jesus' resurrection, there was this explosion of miraculous works. Jesus' ministry, his own ministry was marked by miracles, but that was just for that time. But again, there isn't a really strong biblical argument for that. There's no indication in the New Testament that any of the writers expected miraculous healings or gifts of healing to disappear with the early church. None. And certainly James here gives no indication that he expects that this kind of thing is just for a particular moment in church history. So what is it that's going on here? Well, if we look at the context, James is a letter that's writing about sin in the church. There are issues that this church has, and he loves them enough to call them out and to speak to them on it. And in verse 15, he says here, if he has sinned, he will be forgiven. And the confession here apparently brings healing as it's prayed for. See, could it be that James is not talking about just any sickness here, but a very unique kind of sickness that is brought on by an unconfessed sin? He's just said earlier in verse 9 
Do not grumble against one another, brothers, uh, one another, brothers and sisters, or you'll be judged. The judge is standing at the door. There is a warning about being honest about things. What it seems to be referring to is a type of sickness that God would use to discipline those who love him, to draw them to repentance and back to himself. Now you might be saying, gosh, does that sound like the kind of God that I follow? I mean, is that really the kind of thing that a loving God would do? I mean, if you were with us here last year in the middle of the year, we spent an entire month going through the book of Job where it was abundantly clear that Job suffered innocently, that he had done nothing wrong. There was no particular sin that he had done. He had three friends who went at him forever saying to him, Job, you must have done something wrong. Only bad things happen to bad people. You must have done something wrong. If you just find out what that is and confess it, it'll all be fine. And at the end of the book, Job is vindicated by God himself as he says, this was was not because he had done anything wrong. In fact, it's the clear teaching of Scripture over and over again that suffering is not in some way karmic punishment for something that you've done. When a blind man is brought to Jesus in John 9, they say to him, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? And Jesus says, neither of those are true. In fact, it's got nothing to do with him. It wasn't his fault. It's the repeated teaching of Scripture that this isn't the case. The, t- the Scripture teaches that since the fall, since humankind walked away from God, that suffering has been in the world as a general wake-up call and call back to Him. But it is the case that God does discipline those whom He loves. In Hebrews 12, we read, The Lord disciplines the one He loves, and God disciplines us for our good that we might share in His holiness. That is, He sometimes puts us through difficult circumstances that we might draw nearer to Him. There is one other mention in 1 Corinthians 11 of this kind of thing that James is talking about. Look at what it says. In 1 Corinthians 11, 28 to 32, we read, Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not finally be condemned with the world. In Corinthians in their church, they seemed to have the issue that when everyone came together for communion, a party got started and things just got way out of hand. And instead of drinking the wine and remembering Jesus' blood spilled for them, they just got hammered. And Paul writes to them saying, just in case you didn't know, that's not the point of communion. But he says to them quite clearly there, because of this, because of this open sin in the church, he says some of you are sick. That God is actually disciplining them, that it might lead them to repentance. This is our God. He loves us enough to discipline us, not to leave us in sin. You can think of it this way. I heard something recently on the difference between primary and secondary emotions. Uh, You're like, oh, we're going to get like a a lesson in psychobabble here. But anyway, just, just bear with me for a tick. The idea is that in certain situations, sometimes the secondary emotion, in terms of our response, can overtake the primary emotion. So, for example, if, um, if one of our kids ran out onto the street, we might yell at them to stop and run up to them and grab them and say, how could you do that? And if you ask them in that moment, what's dad feeling? 
they would say anger. But my primary emotion would actually be fear. I'm afraid that they're actually going to get hurt, and then I'm angry that they made me feel afraid. But the secondary emotion, the one that kind of came along second, is now the, the strongest one that they're sort of feeling, and it overwhelms the first. I make this point because I'm saying this. God disciplines not because that's what he loves to do. What he loves is for us to know joy in him. But sometimes he must discipline in order to do that. And it seems that in very rare circumstances, and there are very few mentions of it in the New Testament, that there are occasions, and James wants to bring our attention to it, where it's possible. The majority of the time it is not. There are certain situations where it's possible that someone might be sick because God is disciplining them. And how do you know? Well, it's quite simple. It says if you confess that sin and the elders pray of you, it will be taken away. It will be, 100% of the time. That's how you know. James is writing with a pastoral heart, knowing that many of their trials won't be because of this. And it would be risky, by the way, to then go around saying to people, oh, you're sick, you've got a cold, I see you've got a sniffle. I uh, bet you've got some real sins hanging on there. No, it seems to be extremely rare, and really all we can see is two specific mentions in the New Testament. But the plainest reading of Scripture here is that that's what it's talking about. It's because God cares about sin in the church. He cares about His people. He loves us too much to leave us in sin. And so James is saying here, look out for one another. Pray for one another and be open to considering your heart. If there's something that God is pressing on you, that maybe you need to confess, that there's unconfessed sin that he's really working on you with. James says God wants his church to be holy. He loves his people. And that's why he finishes with this final exhortation in 19 and 20. Look what he says here. He says, My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth, And someone should bring that person back. Remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. My wife and I met each other on Beach Mission, which is, Beach Mission is a, it's a kids, it's not a Christian dating service. It's a, it's a a thing you go away on, you run programs usually for kids, but right up to adults, where you go to kind of a caravan park or holiday destination, set up some massive tents and, and run programs where you share Jesus with people you never met. At the beginning of the week, no one knows each other. By the end, everyone's crying because they're saying goodbye and all this kind of stuff. But, um, but looking back at old beach mission photos, one of the things that did strike me, one of the, I guess, less happy reflections, is looking at the size of the teams, you know, 60, 70 people, and how many of them are no longer walking with the Lord. And it's not a small amount. I mean, it's different to a church context. You don't know everyone from, on beach mission. Everyone's coming from all these different places and spaces. But looking back on it, many have walked away. And James is saying, if you know someone who used to call themselves a brother or sister and didn't, he says, go after them in love and mercy. Don't be the kind who's like, well, I mean, my faith is mostly about me getting across the finish line, so best of luck to everyone else. He's saying, no, look, brothers and sisters, if one of you wanders from the truth and someone else brings them back, just know you are saving them from death. He says, go after them. Lovingly, gently, graciously. Christmas is coming up, if you haven't noticed. And it's the reminder that God doesn't simply give up on people. 
And I think some people who've walked out of the church, whether they were genuinely saved and they've walked away for a time or they never really knew true saving grace, I think many have walked out and they find it hard to believe that God would have them back. I mean, because our experience is that people give up on people all the time, I think many people feel like, if I treated God the way, sorry, if someone treated me the way I've treated God, I would shut the door on them and never open it again. And James is saying, you are to be God's ambassadors in this and to show people the love and grace that they need, to go after them lovingly, to remind them of the truth and love of Jesus. I mean, the gospel message of Christmas is that God didn't give up on us. And in sin, we willfully rejected him. We brought death on ourselves. And instead of leaving us in that estate, he stepped into our situation. He sent his own dear son to bear his wrath on our behalf that we might be set free. James is saying, go after the wayward brother or sister. Love them. This week, you might have seen plastered across the papers the photo of a fireman carrying a small child with him. And I, I've never met someone who's actually done something like that, but I imagine if you asked them, why did you do it? The answer would be something along the lines of, well, why wouldn't I? I mean, to save someone from death, it is worth risking my life. James is saying, whoever turns a sinner from the errors of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sin. Go after them. Maybe God, through His Holy Spirit, is putting someone or a bunch of people on your heart right now that you could reach out to, you could invite. I mean, Christmas is an easy time for people to come along, but maybe someone who you just haven't spoken to in a while to send them a message that you're praying for them, or to actually, do, to actually pray for them. I mean, James, the whole book has just been saying, just do something. If there's been someone who's been on your mind for a long time, James is saying, do something about it. It says, church is meant to be here for one another, for those who are troubled, for those who are joyful, for those who are sick, who have sinned that needs confession, for those who have wandered from the truth. James is saying we are meant to be here for one another. We're a church community, not just about ourselves, but looking to the needs of others. And he reminds us, doesn't he, that prayer is powerful. And no one is beyond the reach of God. There is no one who has sinned too greatly to be brought back. He says you save them from death and cover a multitude of sins. Let's pray. Father, we praise you that you are a God who pursues. You have loved us with an everlasting love. That you have loved us even to the point of the death of Jesus. That through his blood we are redeemed and made new. That we've been set free. And Father, we pray that we'd be a people who care about one another, who love one another like Christ has loved us. Father, we pray that we do this all for the glory of your name. Amen.